0: Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast, where healthcare meets business with your host, me, Dr. Karen Litzy. And just as a reminder, the information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and is not to be used as personalized medical advice. Enjoy the show. Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. I am your host, Dr. Karen Litzey, owner of Karen Litzy Physical Therapy, located in New York City. On today's episode, I'm so happy to have the wonderful Dr. Stephanie Wyrock back as the host of today's episode. And she is interviewing Dr. James Denniser Green about rural health care. Dr. Deniser Green shares his background and experiences growing up in Montana and his journey through medical training in both urban and rural settings. They discuss the challenges and rewards of practicing medicine in smaller communities and highlights the close-knit nature of these communities. A little bit more about Dr. Dennis R. green He's a dedicated medical professional with a di- diverse range of clinical expertise, including general preventative medicine, maternity care, and graduate medical education. He currently serves as an attending faculty physician with the Federally Qualified Health Center and Associate Program Director for a Family Medicine Residency Program located in Billings, Montana. He provides... Full-spectrum care in multiple settings, including outpatient, inpatient, adult, pediatric, and maternity care. He completed his residency in family medicine with the UNLV School of Medicine and holds a PhD in cell and molecular biology, as well as an MD from the University of North Carolina. He has been recognized for his achievements, including the 40 Under 40 Award from the Billings Gazette in 2023, and the Resident Teacher Award from the Society of Teachers of Family Medicine in 2019. So I know everybody thinks that the best medicine comes from big cities, but... I think this episode will show you that there is also best medicine and best practices happening in rural communities across the country. So, Mm -hmm. thanks to Dr. Wyrock. Thanks to Dr. Deniser Green, and everyone, enjoy today's episode.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Healthcare uh, of the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart podcast. I'm your host, a guest host today, Dr. Stephanie Wyrock, and I'm here joined today. By a very special guest um, from the new state that I've moved to, Montana. Um, we're joined by Dr. James uh, Denisar Green, and he is here to talk a little bit with us about healthcare, specifically rural healthcare. So, uh, Dr. Denisar Green, if you could just kind of talk a little bit about yourself, give us a little bit of background and how you ended up in this wonderful city of Billings, Montana.
2: Yeah, thank you, Stephanie. I'm excited to be here. Um, My name is James Denisar-Green. I'm an MD-PhD by training. Um, So I I also was born in Montana uh, in a town called Haver, so uh, close to the Canadian border, and um, spent my first 18 years growing up in Montana and then kind of traveled around for my education Washington State for undergrad, University of Chapel Hill for med school, back to the West Coast, um, UNLV for residency training. And so I've really experienced healthcare both in urban centers as well as as rural settings, um, both growing up, but then just in terms of my training, uh, going into rural training as a family medicine provider. Um, When I was doing my interviews, I, I, I like to sort of tell this story, but. I grew up in Harlem, Montana, so again, an even smaller town, but the story goes like this. My sister uh, used to be a competitive swimmer, and they used to raise money. They sold a calendar for the town, for Harlem, and in that calendar, everybody's birthday in the town was on that calendar to describe how small the town was, but also how close knit the community was in terms of growing up in a small community, um, and then growing up in learning about the practice of medicine and then how um, challenging sometimes that can be working in a smaller community. But I think it just kind of sets the tone for there's a lot of small places in this great country. And um, it's difficult sometimes to get the high quality care that we see in a lot of our urban training centers into those rural areas.
1: You did a lot of your training. You did a lot of your training in the Raleigh-Durham area. Um, So you were surrounded by academic medicine, all the resources that a person could possibly have. What made you decide to come home and serve the the community here in Montana?
2: A lot of it is, you know, heartfelt and seeing just the need. Um, I think, again, growing up in a rural community, and not having that access to care, having limitations, particularly in terms of specialists and just um, making those barriers less. Um, so I think it was very personal for me. Um, again, I in my training as an MB PhD, there's a lot of emphasis on trying to specialize, trying to balance both um, a clinical career as well as kind of a research career. And the more I got into research, the more I felt like it just wasn't the right skill set for me in terms of where I came from and who I was and what I wanted to do. And I wanted to have, you know, longitudinal relationships. I wanted to grow and know those communities. And so I am very appreciative that I was able to work in these amazing academic centers, but I really think the place that I could make the most change was coming back to some of these rural communities and also being a voice that these rural communities real challenges, the same challenges that urban centers have, um, but that we need providers there who are committed to that and then also training the next generation.
1: Tell us a little bit about the patient population that you see here in Billings.
2: Yeah, so um, I'm a faculty physician here in Billings and I work for a federally qualified health center and what that means is basically we work within a clinic that has a lot of support services Um, in terms of meeting um, disadvantaged populations, both racially, socioeconomically, um, here in Billings. And so particularly in Montana, uh, we have seven reservations. We have a a large number of tribes um, that come to Billings and kind of use it as a hub, as well a lot of Eastern Montana that uses Billings as a hub for a lot of their specialty care. So we kind of sit at a nexus between a lot of primary care for the underserved here locally in Billings, but we also kind of serve as translators between some of the specialists that uh, work here in Billings and um, smaller communities that may have only really worked with, um, you know, maybe one provider in town, whether that's a family physician, um, you know, like a PA or a family nurse practitioner who kind of really knows the community and trying to Trying to help them, particularly in the hospital setting.
1: I know that one of the interests that you have as a uh, family medicine provider is in OB and Mm -hmm. delivering babies. And one of the issues for our listeners that don't know here in Billings is that we do have a significant shortage of OBs in this area. So tell us a little bit about your experience as a family physician trying to kind of fill this gap and help women who potentially are having a difficult time getting into an OBGYN's office.
2: Yeah. So, um, family medicine is, is designed to really be a jack of all trades specialty, but part of our scope of practice does include obstetrical care, uh, particularly around low, you know, lower risk deliveries. Um, and part of our training is really to fill that that aspect in rural settings in particular, where it is hard to find, you know, maybe a provider or an OBGYN to have enough throughput to really make sense to have a full OBGYN. So um, family practitioners, as well as midwives, we work a lot with midwives and are great partners in terms of kind of low risk care, um, kind of help fill the gap where if OBGYNs, um, you know, typically migrate to larger centers or they kind of have a very busy practice in a rural setting, um, but they're kind of always on call. And that's that's a difficult lifestyle for a lot of Wins. It's similar though for a family practice, right? Because if you're doing low, low risk deliveries, like I did with my rural training in Northern Nevada, um, you're kind of always around and available. You, know, you have hopefully a few partners that can help cover. But that's really kind of the, the service and the calling of doing obstetrics in a rural setting, really wherever you go, whether you're family practice trained or OB-GYN trained or midwife.
1: You had mentioned that you're a faculty at the health center that you work at. So you guys have a residency program. Can yeah. you tell us a little bit about what it's like training these young physicians to become rural health care providers, kind of the focus of your training and how you help them, you know, if there is a specialty area that they are interested in family medicine, how you help them get to that point. Tell us a little bit about this, the residency and the residents that you work with.
2: Yeah. So um, for folks that aren't familiar with uh, family medicine, but really physician training in general. So you finish med school, so you do four years of med school, and then you kind of have to figure out what specialty you want to go into. And so family practice, again, kind of being a jack of all trades, we have a very broad specialty um, in that we do probably 80 to 90% of primary care, right? So we're kind of entry level. If people need a stepping off stone to a specialist um, and a lot of care coordination and management. So the family medicine training includes another three years of residency uh, in order to be board certified. And so to be board certified, you have to complete three years, and that's going to include a balance of pediatrics, outpatient, inpatient obstetrical training, as well as a number of, you know, experiences and subspecialty training. So ophthalmology, musculoskeletal, ortho, cardiology. So you're going to, again, have exposure to a broad swath of medicine. So you can understand what kind of the next step is, even if you weren't trained to do that next step. So we're not surgeons. We don't, we do minor procedures, but we don't do major surgery. Um, And so part of that training is that's kind of the apprenticeship model and residents are here for three years and really working on translating that medical knowledge from med school into actual practice, right? And so um, the art of medicine is understanding there's a lot of systems factors, right, that affect how we practice medicine. Many states, particularly the last few years, have changed laws in terms of reproductive access. And so we're trying to manage and figure out how does that affect our patients? How do we get them the care that they need? Um, We work within systems where Medicare and Medicaid rules for each state are changing. How do we get the patients the access and the care that they need? Um, Sometimes support services. Again, we live in Montana. It's a very geographically spread out state. Transportation can be a huge issue, just trying to get patients to their appointments where they need to be, or even some, some of the patients that we see in our center don't have phones so we have to really think about how do we make sure they're coming back for their appointments how do we make sure that they're getting to their specialist follow-ups um, how do we give them the tools to be successful to navigate the system where in again larger urban centers and um you know kind of west versus east coast sometimes you may not even think about these things
1: i think that you make a really interesting point as to you know like things like the challenges like transportation, not having a phone. I mean, even in an urban area, even though there are underserved people in an urban area, there's always some type of medical transportation system that people can call. You know, if they have the ab- ability to do Lyft or Uber. I mean, I had to book a Uber in advance, like a week to get to the airport the other day here in Billings. So, you know, those things that we kind of take for granted in an urban area may not necessarily be around in a rural area. How You talked a little bit about you have to navigate those challenges. Can you get a little bit more specific or maybe give us some examples of how you as a primary care provider have helped your patients overcome some of these barriers to access for medical care?
2: Yeah, so I think the first part of that is just acknowledging we work, um, again, as a team. And so whether, um, so I'm very fortunate because I work in a federally qualified health center that I have a team that helps support me. Um, If you're like a solo practitioner, you know, in eastern Montana and trying to figure out with a medical assistant, it's really first identifying and knowing your community and the resources you have available. So a lot of this is just understanding the system you work in and what's available and what's not? So where we're we're at here in Billings again? I have a lot of support services. So the care managers, you know, they understand all the hoops about getting transportation. So we can book taxis and Ubers and Lyfts if we need to. But there's the knowing uh, 24 hours ahead of time, right? That we have to do all the paperwork and get it approved um, for Medicaid. Um, you know, we used to ha- we used to have a program in terms of getting patients' phones. And again, just as you know, programs come and go, grants come and go. Um, sometimes that money is there and sometimes it's not. So it's really about pre-planning and we get them, you know, what communication do we have? Sometimes we have to put friends' phone numbers in the chart. If they're, you know, unsheltered or homeless and they're living at the mission, sometimes we put the mission's phone number in the chart, right? That's kind of like a telephone game of, hey, this patient is currently staying at the mission and they're homeless and we need to make sure that they're going to show up to get picked up to come to their appointment.
1: Those are some, uh, really good examples of how you overcome some of those challenges. I know that, um, when I worked in rural Minnesota, we would have patients come from like t- a two hour radius to come to our physical therapy clinic. And, uh, now here in Billings, because I've realized some of the transportation issues people have, you know, I've decided to go see patients myself to them because again, it you never know, you never know what the weather you never know mm-hmm. with uh, the type of transportation that they have, so um, it sounds like having the support there has been essential in making sure that you guys are able to see those patients. And not only do you have that support staff, but you also have to rely on other providers to help serve mm-hmm. these patients. So, how do you as, as a how do you as a primary care provider collaborate with other healthcare providers to make sure that? these patients are following through to make sure that they're getting the healthcare that they need. Cause that's gotta be another big barrier in with the population that you serve.
2: Yeah. I, and again, a lot of this is, you know, um, relationships and and kind of building community equity with other healthcare partners. Right. So I can think of a patient who um, I've been working with for the last couple of years. Um, he's had a couple of falls, um, you know, in, in the past he's kind of struggled with alcoholism and he's been, you know, greatly sober for two years, but he's had a lot of falls and really kind of messed up his knees. So he's now, um, I think six months out of a second knee operation. And I remember um, because of his alcohol use, he had a really hard time just remembering his appointments. And so I would be regularly on the phone being like, you know, to the orthopedic surgeon being like, you got to handhold this guy. Like I know this patient, you got to really explain stuff to him. And then, you know, getting them into physical therapy and saying, no, you really got to go to these therapy appointments. We got to strengthen this knee. You know, all your ligaments are super messed up and you just got to go in and get some strengthening. And so is a lot of handholding, a lot of encouraging, a lot of reminders. And and again, kind of pushing on our partners to say, this isn't going to be your standard patient. You can just book, set the appointment and kind of forget about, there's going to be some nuances to how you're going to think about this guy. And, and again, from a physical therapy, from a orthopedic surgeon perspective, they got to think through, you know, getting a good outcome and how are they going to adapt their training to getting the best outcome for this patient?
1: That is definitely a challenge. I think as, especially as a physical, I I can appreciate this as a physical therapist because, you know, sometimes you have to come to appointments two times a week, which, you know, it sounds like that your patient had a challenge is challenging enough for him to go see his orthopedic surgeon, which those appointments are so interspersed. And, um, you know, there's always this struggle. I feel like as a healthcare provider in handholding our patients, but yet also giving them the res- the responsibility for their health, having them be responsible for their, for their health yeah. and thinking about how these social determinants of health kind of affect that hole that we feel from each side. How do you as a primary care provider deal with this conundrum that I think all of us healthcare providers face in the handholding so that your patients are actually following through and the responsibility that people sh- should take for their health?
2: Man, that is a that's a life. That's the art of medicine that we work with our residents on. <laughs> um, I think you know it's really a case by case basis. I I try to approach patients fairly, right? So when I'm thinking about um, my approach to patients, and you know, you know, evidence, and you know, quality of care, I'm really starting out with the, the, you know, this is the things we know work well. And these are the things that, that we know don't have great evidence. And for you, you know, I think this is what we need, but then getting in the social determinants of health, you know, if I'm saying, you know, if I can squeak out a little bit benefit with a sixth medicine, or can I really think about, you know, what's the biggest bang for our buck? If you're having trouble remembering to take your medication or, or, you know, the extra $3 copay um, is, is a barrier for you. You know, what's the biggest bang for your buck and really we call it patient centered, right. But we're really kind of negotiating to say, you know, this, you know, if you are in a huge academic center, these are all the things that you should take, but I know you well enough the last year we've struggled to, to, to do that. You know, what are the things me as a provider I'm really trying to say, I really want you to take this. I really need you to do this because we know this is going to be a good outcome for you. And then just kind of negotiating from there, you know, what's feasible for some of those social determinants of health. So if they have to, you know, um, sometimes insulin can be tremendously expensive and it can vary by pharmacy. And so this is another thing from like a primary care perspective, you know, if you're using, you know, retail pharmacies, you know, versus a 340B pharmacy versus a hospital pharmacy. I have no idea what the cost of those medications are, but the the steps to have to send different medications or mail-order pharmacies to different places, you know, to try to help my patient do the best that they can to take, you know, the medicines that I think that they need. Um, It can be a lot of work, but it's also very rewarding to to see the benefits, you know, to see them get their A1Cs down, to really see them make that progress, maybe in terms of weight loss. Um, But yeah, it is is a maze and it it is the art of medicine of trying to to meet them where they are and what their specific case is.
1: I think that's a great point, meeting patients where they are and going from there. Because I think the hardest lesson I learned as a young physical therapist was that not everybody is ready to get better yet and it's Mm -hmm. not your fault as the provider and that's okay. If they're not ready, you have to give them what they will take and go from there. And I think that that is a lesson that I, if I were to go back in time and tell my younger self, like, this is one thing that will keep you, that will keep you up at night. If you don't learn this, that would be the lesson that I would take. And I do think that it does take practice. It takes experience and it is definitely an art because, um, If patients, you can't force anyone to do anything, but patients Mm -hmm. still want to be heard. And if they feel Mm -hmm. heard by their providers and they feel like their situation is understood, a lot of times moving that needle gets to be a little bit easier than if, you know, you just take the authoritative approach, like like old school medicine, Mm -hmm. basically.
2: Yeah. 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 We uh, we had a lot of lectures. We did a lot of social determinants of health. and Chapel Hill, and talked about you know the the nature of paternalism and us kind of t- telling the patient what to do, and really particularly in family medicine, primary care, we're really we really try to focus on patient centeredness and informing in patients to help make the best decision. Right, we're not telling them. We really want to empower them to help them understand. You know, you know, we want to we want to help you quit smoking. You know, there's lots of reasons why, and these that you know, your breathing, maybe your COPD um, is not going to get any better. And we have tools to help you with that, but you got to reach the point, you know, to be ready to do that. And, um, you know, going back to the systems things, there's just so many things, you know, set up against people sometimes. Um, I see it a lot in terms of, you know, health, uh, healthy options at the supermarket, you know, low cost versus healthy. And, you know, it's a, especially in rural setting, it's you don't have a lot of options in terms of what you can get off the shelf sometimes, I remember when I was in Northern Nevada and Walmart was our biggest crochet, right? So you're kind of stuck with what they have to offer and you got to make the best decisions you can. So, uh, yeah, it's meeting patients where they are, trying to help them understand, inform them with the best medical evidence you have and, and, um, and really investing in that relationship. I think if you lose a patient's trust, it is so much harder to be their provider. If you don't have their trust, even if you agree to disagree, you got to at least help them feel like they're being heard.
1: Yeah, I love that. You know, you mentioned uh system like it seems like sometimes the systems are all against us when it comes to healthcare. How, you know, this is kind of I'm I love advocacy. I'm you know, I do a lot of advocacy work, but what type of advocacy work have you done or do you um see your uh colleagues involved in, in the family medicine realm to try to overcome some of these systemic barriers that, that patients face in our U.S. healthcare system?
2: Uh, Yeah, I, so I think one of the biggest things, um, you know, when we, we came here to Montana was really about around COVID uh, vaccine hesitancy, um, and just trying to have a clear, consistent need to be out there and talk about the need for COVID vaccines, you know, even the need for flu vaccines, pneumonia vaccines. Um, I think having just a consistent voice to back up the evidence and the science, when sometimes there's a a lot of pushback from media and other stronger voices to say, hey, are you sure about this? Um, And so I think advocating for what we know works well, and then just kind of being present, right? I did this more when I, I was a resident in kind of a rural setting, not so much here, but we, you know, we would encourage be encouraged to go to city council meetings, to school board meetings, right? These are the small places, small government places that these policies are kind of being made for your local communities and really thinking about, you know, what are what are the downstreams effects of that? So if you're if you're thinking about a free lunch program, right? And access to nutrition and, you know, for kids in small communities, rural communities, sometimes that might be the healthiest nutrition that they get in a day. And so us showing up to be at those meetings, Uh, you know, me working right now in postgraduate education, working with residents, uh, we empower residents, we want them to go to our state legislatures, to our city council to talk about where family medicine and primary care providers have a voice and can translate those patient stories into you know, civil and um, city ordinances, right? When we're thinking about, do we continue to fund the homeless shelter that affects maybe a large portion of our patient population and stable housing, right? If they don't have stable housing, they're gonna show up in the emergency room when it's cold and rainy or hot um, because of a medical need. So we just need to think about all these places that we can have a local impact and kind of advocate there. I think absolutely the national and the state level But I think um, we shouldn't underestimate, as primary care providers, how much impact we can have on our local relationship and local government organizations.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you think about what levels of government affect our day-to-day lives more, it is the local level. And I think when we do think about advocacy work, a lot of times people think about the national level. How can we change national policy? Mm -hmm. But it's even, I mean, it's way easier to go to your local legislator and talk about the issues that you're facing and have them be the advocate for you at that level, than it is to go to your congressman and try to have them mm-hmm. convince 400 other Congress people to, you know, pass some type of bill that is maybe a little more polarizing at the national level. So I think you do yeah. make a really good point that, you know, even doing something like going to your city council or Um, talking, you know, even talking to the local news about a problem that maybe your healthcare system faces so that you have more advocates in the community can be something that we can all appreciate and think about. So we've talked a little bit about some of the systemic problems that we face as healthcare providers, specifically as a primary care provider. We've talked about how we can change those from a local advocacy perspective but what about getting more providers in these rural areas? What are some of the ideas that uh, you would have for that? How do you guys recruit people to a rural area like Billings, Montana? And what could potentially other healthcare providers do to make sure that we're serving this population?
2: Yeah, I um, I think kind of going back to even... Um, some of the policy changes that I do think have been really helping on a national level. So um, again, I did a rural training track, which basically means I did kind of my first year in Las Vegas, but then moved to Northern Nevada to finish out the rest of my training in a, in a small town called Winnemucca. And um, I think the advantage to those sorts of trainings is the residents Uh, You're getting your training in those local communities, getting to know those systems, understanding what that job looks like. And so there's been a big push nationally over the last couple of years, particularly Midwest and Western states, who have really seen the success of recruiting and um, retaining family physicians and other uh, rural providers to those communities by incentivizing those training in those rural locations. So I think that's actually been one national program that's worked well. We continue to grow those programs. So I think um, particularly the critical access hospitals and smaller um, community health centers should look at those programs as like a stepping stone to help really solidify um, bringing in rural providers, because it is a challenge. Um, It can take anywhere from five to 10 years to really bring in the right provider for a community. And, you know, having someone trained there locally is just lowering the barrier to bringing in more providers. So I think that's, that's a program that, you know, smaller communities and smaller hospitals should look at in terms of if it makes sense for their community. Um, I think, at you know, working in, in Billings and working with family medicine residency here, it's really about finding the right candidates, right? We really want to know that the people who are interviewing with us, understand what it's like to live and work in a rural community. And maybe they haven't, you know, um, A lot of our folks come through the WAMI program and and maybe have trained in Seattle. So uh, we encourage them to come do audition rotations, really come see the community, see what it's like, because um, even though family medicine training is three years, it can be a really long three years if you're coming from an urban center and all of a sudden this is is what you signed up for. So I think, you know, making sure people as uh, candidates are informed and understand what what they're getting into but also seeing the joys of you know really having a huge impact. Um, I, I think one of the things again when I was working in kind of this urban research thing is I just felt kind of like an ant in an ant farm right I was kind of you know there's so many smart people there's so many brainy people but you don't it's hard to get that tangential the that feeling that like I'm making a difference and wow do you get that feeling when you come to a small community as a provider and really can see the fruits of your labor and helping people have healthier lives and it's just such a rewarding feeling um but yeah it comes with some trade-offs in terms of you're you're, you're at the limits of kind of your training and you know um y- you can anticipate all the things that are going to come in the door that you may not be ready for but they're going to come so um i think it's both rewarding and a little bit scary but uh i really enjoy it and uh that's the kind of um feeling and attitude that we're kind of looking for in candidates who want to train here.
1: You know, one of the other barriers that Montana really faces that I think is really unique to the state is that they don't have a medical school. Well, now they have a DO school here in Billings, but they don't have a MD uh, school here in the state, which has always really surprised me because I think of University of Montana as like the place to go for college in Montana. but most of the people from Montana that want to pursue medicine and want an in-state tuition medical school end up going to University of Washington. Um, Did you, did you say the acronym for that?
2: Yeah. So the way, so the whammy program, so it stands for basically this, this Western Alliance. So um, yeah, it was kind of a unique, you know, multi-state solution. So Um, So WAMI stands for Washington, Wyoming, Alaska, Montana, and Idaho, and it's a multi-state kind of collaboration where the states um, kind of pay into this fund. And so the University of Washington as the hub is basically looking at students within those states and saying, if you apply to our medical school, and again, this is an allopathic MD school, you know, we will kind of have preferential treatment to consider you as an applicant. So rather than investing in a complete medical school and all the costs that come associated with that, that's where it has been um, fruitful for some of these states. But again, as Montana has grown, you know, now we have a larger medical need and Uh, We have osteopathic medical school um, here in Billings now that's seen that need and is growing with the state of Montana. So I think that is another great thing for Montana to see uh, an expansion of providers being trained here in Montana and will hopefully stay and work here.
1: And they you know, the research says that people who are trained in this trained in the state and are more likely to stay or to come back to the state where they were trained at. And I know that my husband graduated from medical school in North Dakota, which is where we're from. And the medical school there has over 50% of the class ends up graduating and going into a residency program that is a primary care field. So they really emphasize primary care in that medical school. And many of them do end up returning to North Dakota. But in order to have those healthcare providers come back, you have to make sure that you're funding the school, you're providing s- these physicians the resources that they need, and like you had mentioned, some giving them some incentives to come back and serve their communities. Because um, if the incentives aren't there or the resources aren't there, it's going to be really, really hard to maintain that healthcare infrastructure.
2: Yeah and I think that's the part where local communities can really think you know not just the health centers but really think about you know who is our competition when we're trying to bring these providers in. So I know I've been um, I've chatted with some of like the local the city officials in terms of how do we recruit people here to Billings and you know they're really thinking about we're competing against Salt Lakes and Seattles and Spokane's and Denver's in terms of recruiting providers like what makes Billings the place they want to bring their families, their kids To Billings to serve as medical providers. And so they're very aware of that. So if that's parks, if that's additional services, you know, they're trying to make Billings as a community a better place to come work for them.
1: So we ask one last follow up question to all of our people that come on this podcast. And that is if you were to give yourself, your younger self, one piece of advice what would that advice be?
2: I, I, you know, I had, um, I had a lot of challenges. Again, I think coming from a rural state like Montana and really transitioning into like these larger urban training centers. And so I think, um, I think just stick with it because it, it can be extremely challenging, you know. Just as people who come from urban centers to rural place make this cultural shift, those of us that grow up in rural communities and all of a sudden move to these places where we feel like ants and a, and a giant academic anthill, hill, um, you you feel just overwhelmed and you complete lack identity. Where in the past you've had this small community, you knew who you were, you know what you were doing. You you were probably pretty smart for. <laughs> For your community, right? Because you've kind of risen through the top in terms of academics. Um, but I think just stick with it, right? I think resilience. We talk a lot about resilience these days, but I really think it's about um, understanding you're going to have adversity through, you know, whatever sort of medical training you have, and remember those first principles on why you got started. So for me, you know, I got started. I wanted to make a difference. I knew it was important to me to serve a community. I was drawn to medicine, and even though Where I thought I was going to go, which was like an ermine academic, MD, PhD kind of combination research clinical career didn't happen. I'm very happy and satisfied working with residents, being a primary care provider, seeing the fruits of my labor, um, making a difference in terms of people's lives and helping serve a lot of the community, um, the people I grew up with. It's just very rewarding. And so I think stick with it is the biggest thing I could say.
1: Well, it definitely sounds like you have stuck with your meaning and purpose in your life. I can definitely tell by our conversations here. And then, of course, outside of this podcast interview, that you're extremely passionate about serving this community. And um, you know, Montana is extremely lucky to have a provider like you here. So we thank you for everything that you do. And we thank all primary care providers for the work that you do, because it is not easy trying to be the gatekeepers of medicine. So thank Mm -hmm. you. Thank and, you. uh, if people want to contact you, uh, after this podcast, uh, what's a good place that they can reach you.
2: Yeah. So my email is mudthudgreen. So that's the M D P H D. So it's M U D P H U D green at gmail.com. If they want to reach out to me
1: and we will put that email in the show notes so that you guys have access to that. Well, thank you so much, James, for coming on this podcast with us. And thank you for everyone for listening and remember to stay healthy, wealthy, and smart. We'll see you next time.
0: Thanks for listening. And don't forget to leave us your questions and comments at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com.